BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Welcome to my podcast, Justice Matters. You know, if you have been downloading and listening to episodes of Justice Matters, or if you watch them on YouTube, you know that I generally don't have guests. Um, I typically talk about legal issues of the day. We try to put them in the larger context, and then we try to discuss proposed solutions to the in many, many problems we're experiencing now with the crime, the corruption, the abuse in our federal government. Um, but I thought it was about time. I'm sure you, you know, enjoy just looking at or listening to me and me alone the whole time. Um, but I thought it was about time that I had my first guest. And there is nobody that I would rather sit down and talk with um, than my good friend, Brett Parson. Who is Brett Parson? Brett is a recently retired police officer. Uh, he served for nearly 30 years with the Washington, D.C., Metropolitan Police Department, we call it MPD. And um, what Brett did as a police officer is in about 1999-2000, he pioneered MPD's Gay and Lesbian Liaison Unit, what we used to call the GLU, G-L-L-U. It has since been renamed the LGBTQ plus unit. And Brett's work in creating that unit earned him countless awards, and I'm not going to list them all, but I'll, I'll list one. Um, his work standing up that unit earned him the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government Innovations in Government Award, and that came with a $100,000 grant so Brett could go out nationwide to other police departments and help replicate that unit's success. Um, Brett and I also worked a high-profile murder case together in 2006, the murder of a young man named Robert Wan. And without Brett by my side and on our investigative team and on my prosecution team, I could not have made my way through that uh, incredibly challenging, difficult, and emotional uh, investigation and prosecution. Uh, if I listed all Brett's awards, it would take up the whole, you know, 45 or 60 minutes. Um, Brett has not only worked um, to create the LGBTQ plus unit, he worked in virtually every other area of policing in Washington, D.C., including vice, narcotics, gun recovery, bias and hate crimes, domestic violence, sex crimes, homicides. He also supervised DC's elite narcotics strike force. Um, Brett has lectured at vir virtually every law enforcement agency in the Washington DC metropolitan area. He has taught classes or consulted for, you know, the State Department, the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense, the Department of Interior, Labor, Veterans Affairs, Transportation, Homeland Security, and he has lectured to every branch of the U.S. military. He has taught, lectured, given classes at too many universities to name. But most importantly, 
Brett is the kind of person who, for his whole career, he policed with forethought, with empathy, with kindness, um, with decency, and with an understanding that, you know, all victims are not made equal. All witnesses are not created equal. All defendants, all crimes are not created equal. And what Brett did as a police officer, first and foremost, is he listened. He listened. And I am proud to call him a friend. I know the District of Columbia was proud to have him policing the streets the way he did for nearly three decades. And so I am extremely proud to have as my first guest, Brett Parson, because justice matters. So, um, as you all know, if you've been watching um, my podcast, Justice Matters, um, I have not yet had a guest on, um, and all of you have made some great suggestions about who you'd like to hear from, um, but I decided that um, somebody that I worked with when I was a prosecutor in Washington, D.C., and he was a police officer, um, was who I wanted my first guest to be because of who he is and the work that he did for more than two decades, nearly three decades as a police officer with the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. And he is Brett Parson. So, Brett, uh, I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you are my first guest that I'll be interviewing on my podcast, Justice Matters. I'm happy to be a guinea pig, and I want to say that just from the onset... Speaking to you now without being sworn in is really strange because normally when you're asking me questions, I have to swear to, to tell the truth beforehand. So this is a little awkward. Yeah, you, you could actually pull a little something on us and you cannot catch a perjury charge here, which, <laughs> which is a good thing. Fantastic. And we were joking a few minutes ago, maybe we should call this, you know, two bald guys in a microphone. I'm not quite sure. Um, but so what I want to do, Brett, is um, I know your background. I know what you've done with the police department over the years. But can you give the viewers and the listeners a little bit of an idea of what you did with the Metropolitan Police Department? Sure. So um, I am one of those few people in the world that uh, knew from a very young age what they wanted to do. Uh, I, I think I saw a police officer at the age of five. It was my Halloween costume, my birthday theme, my sheets and pillowcases turned to police officers. And as my mother says, the costume has never changed in nearly 40 years. Um, and I knew I wanted to be a police officer where I was born and raised. I, I was born in D.C. Uh, my family moved out to Maryland in the suburbs so that my sister and I could be uh, closer to education out there in the county. But then I moved in back into D.C. Uh, after college. So I joined the Metropolitan Police Department in the early 90s and had the typical career as a police officer, investigator, doing vice narcotics work, I investigated domestic violence. And then in um, 2000, Charles Ramsey came to be our chief of police. Um, uh, it was a, a revolutionary change for us. We had not had an outside chief of police, in, certainly in my career. And there was a unit that had started about a year earlier called the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Unit, referred to as GLUE, the acronym. And the two women that started that existed for about a year. They did some great work. But they struggled, and they went to Chuck Ramsey as the liaisons, and they said, we need out. 
he knew politically that was the wrong thing to do because you don't start a unit like that and then just terminate it. And I got a phone call in 2000 from the chief of police. I was a lowly sergeant working in major narcotics branch, working in our uh, task force, uh, doing citywide narcotics work. And he said, uh, how would you feel about taking over the gay and lesbian liaison unit? And I spent five minutes telling him he was out of his mind. Uh, and that was the worst decision he could make. Um, and he's finally stopped me and he said, Brad, I don't think you understand. I, I've already made the decision. Yeah. I'm transferring you. I just wanted to know how you felt about it. It was just a courtesy. Yeah, I, he was asking this, your this, opinion, this right? This not seeking your opinion. So I, I completely missed that cue. Um, and that started a 20-year adventure and experience into a side of policing that I, I, I had engaged in community policing. I, I believe in community policing. But it launched me into something as as an exploration and quite honestly a pioneer in some ways into this idea of focusing on marginalized and underserved communities starting in the LGBTQ plus community but then expanding towards the end of my career to take over our entire liaison network of units in the Asian, Latino, deaf and hard of hearing, LGBTQ plus, faith-based communities, the African community and on and on and on and that's where I finished my career in just this past February and it was it was an honor. I still love the profession. Uh, I am I'm heartbroken to see where we are in in the United States regarding the relationship between policing and the citizens we serve. And like you, I uh, I still have a lot of piss and vinegar, and I want to be part of the change that is needed. Um, but it's going to be really difficult. So you all can see why Brett made such a great trial witness when I had the opportunity to put him on the stand. Um, in some of my cases, and I don't even remember some of the earlier cases we had in the 90s, but um, so let me ask you, and you retired when? Uh, February 1st of 2000. Okay, now I want to back it up. You said that you took over the... Of the, 2020, I said 2000, February 1st of 2020. 2020. Um, you said you took over the, the glue, the gay and lesbian unit in 2000. Um, that unit still exists. It does. Um, it has it has updated its name to be more inclusive. It's now the LGBT liaison unit, not just gay and lesbian liaison unit. Yeah, so it still exists, and uh, they're still doing phenomenal work. And how many officers are assigned to the gay and lesbian uh, or the LGBT? So they have a supervisor and I believe three or four full-time members uh, that work in the unit, um, but they are part of a, a branch called Special Liaison Branch that includes nearly 20 plus officers that serve all of those communities that I mentioned just a moment ago. And then there are something called affiliate officers who still work in patrol throughout the District of Columbia, but they have enhanced training and a relationship with special liaison branch that they serve as extra eyes, ears, hands, and feet when they're needed. And so there are you know dozens, if not 30, 40, 50 uh, SLB related officers out there at any given time. So let me ask generally, over your nearly 30 years as a police officer, have you seen policing change? Yeah, um, in, in, in very big ways. I think anyone who tells you that technology has not changed dramatically in just the almost 30 years I've been in here. You know, I literally started policing at the point where we were just getting into computerization. I go back to quintuplicate forms on carbon copies uh, Google that, ladies and gentlemen. If you're young, if you're young and watching, you don't know what a carbon copy is. Google carbon copy, and you'll see it's dark ages. Um, you used to do your police reports on stone tablets, yeah, actually. When you right, started, I'm not, right? I'm no, not okay. your age. Okay. I'm, I'm a little younger <laughs> than you. Um, 
all of us didn't have radios. Um, we shared radios as partners. Um, we had we'd done away with call boxes at that point, but foot patrol was not only still very much part of policing back then, not only because we didn't have enough police cars, but because we hadn't gotten to the point where computerization had hit our vehicles yet. And so we, need, we still needed to be out and in the communities in that way. And then just the ability to get information quickly. I mean, I remember a funny story at the beginning of my career. I, I wrote a, a traffic citation, uh, we call them NOIs, Notices of Infraction, on a cab driver for not wearing a seatbelt. And, and he was pretty rude to me. He told me in no uncertain terms, I didn't know what I was talking about, that he didn't have to wear a seatbelt because he was a cab driver and it was one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I wasn't very polite to him. I was probably rude and unprofessional. I said, don't tell me what my job is. I know the law. Um, well, I lost that. Um, I didn't know that six months earlier they had actually passed because of carjackings that were occurring on cab drivers. They had passed some legislation to exempt cab drivers from wearing. So I say this, that now when that law changes, we get an email blast right mm -hmm. away. We get mm -hmm. a message. We, you know, we get an online training. It didn't happen by then. We had to get memorandums. We had to wait for in-service training every year. And it sounds like that's a story um, with another moral that it also helps to listen to the people you are policing. <laughs> Not that they're always going to be straight with you, but... I ate a lot of humble pie, um, but I also learned something that would serve me, as you just said, really well later on in my career in the liaison work that I was doing is sometimes this... Talking isn't the most effective way to make change and, and, and to be effective communicating. Sometimes just sitting and listening to people is the best way to do that, which is really hard for guys that make a living talking, yeah. presenting, and, and showing confidence and hear the facts. It's really hard to sit and listen, but when you get good at it, it builds trust. And people, people realize he cares. They care if you just sit and listen. So yeah, that, it's an important part and we need to do more of it in policing. So tell me, what were some of the challenges as you were heading up the LGBT unit of the Metropolitan Police Department and how, if at all, does investigating those cases, which might be a hate crime targeted at somebody because of their orientation or, um, you know, or because of some other protected category, how does that differ from policing and investigating in the more run-of-the-mill case? So in one respect, it doesn't. It's not different in any sense of the imagination. The motivations are the same. The, the uh, barriers to, to credibility, the barriers to obtaining evidence and testimony and that sort of thing are all the same. What there is, and, and I've, I've talked about this and I've traveled around the world, luckily training police officers on investigating crimes in the LGBT community is, you know, when you're investigating something in the LGBTQ plus community, there's, there's sort of this, and I call it the pink haze. There's this pink filter that sort of just coats the investigation, the event, that you have to navigate, that you need to be aware is present. It may be that one or more of the people you're dealing with is a member of the LGBTQ plus community and doesn't trust the police, doesn't like the police, has had experience with the police, is afraid of being outed is in a relationship with someone that they're embarrassed about, or if not embarrassed about, if it were learned by their employer or by family members, their life could change in some way. So you need to be aware that this film exists and how to build trust with individuals within that community to first of all acknowledge that that film doesn't change 
that pink haze doesn't change how I'm going to treat this case, but also that I get it, that you can trust me, that the information you give me is going to be used for the specific purpose of what we're doing right now, and that I'm, I'm going to protect you. As you know, working homicides for as many years as you did, your witnesses have to trust that you're going to protect them, that you have their best interest at heart, because if they're scared, first of all, they may lie. They, they, you know, out of fear, they, they may not give you the information that, that is the truth, but also they may not cooperate in any way, shape, or form. It's no different in LGBTQ-related cases, and I think that's the biggest difference. How does that relate to what's going on today? Well, you know, there are so many communities like the LGBTQ plus community that suffer the same type of haze, that film that exists. I mean, the African-American community in the United States has been dealing with this starting at the beginning of our nation. And what we need to acknowledge is that one film doesn't cover just all communities, that every community has a different filter that needs to be understood needs to be acknowledged, and we need to figure out how to overcome that film if it's obstructing justice in some way. And I want to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and you have some really interesting and, I think, revolutionary ideas about some of the reform that needs to take place in policing. Um, but let me talk about um, when a case is being investigated by your unit, the LGBT unit, an arrest is made, and a hate crime is brought in court. So somebody is charged not only with an assault, but an assault that is motivated by some sort of prejudice, hate, bias against a particular person. What are your views uh, from the perspective of a police officer? And I have my views from the perspective of a prosecutor who would be prosecuting the hate crime case. What are your views about the pros and cons and sort of the, the purpose of charging hate crimes, and then trying to win convictions in hate crime cases, because we were talking about this before. My experience as a prosecutor is you're vindicating some incredibly important rights, rights of the victim, and frankly, societal rights, to say we're not going to let this kind of um, crime motivated by prejudice go unpunished or unrecognized, unnoticed for what it is. However, it can also make winning a conviction more difficult in a case if you bring an assault charge or you bring an assault charge where you have an extra element to prove, and that is the assault was motivated by prejudice, bias, Mens hate. rea. In, yeah. Inside, you've got to be able to prove what was inside someone's head. So let me, let me just um, put a pin in it for just a second because I want to just clarify two premises to your question that I want to make sure your viewers understand. Is first of all, um, the GLLU, which then became the LGBT Liaison Unit, was never responsible and is still not responsible for the primary investigation of any crime. Okay. We are a support unit. We were a support unit. Well, they still are a support unit. Uh, I still speak as if I'm there. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, still talking about being a prosecutor. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but what they do and what is unique actually in Washington, D.C., uh, the program that I helped put together is they embed themselves with those investigators. So when a homicide, a sexual abuse, a fraud, domestic violence occurs, they work hand in hand with those lead investigators to make sure they have that expertise to navigate that pink film, that pink haze that I told you about. Mm -hmm. They serve as those, those experts for them. So that's number one. Number two is I want to make sure that, that your viewers understand that 
hate crimes in and of themselves, and I know you know this, I'm not, I don't want to insult your intelligence, they're not crimes in and of themselves. That there's no such thing as a hate crime. There has to be an underlying offense yeah. for it. It's like assault plus. Exactly. It's an enhancement. It is something to say, you did this, and because we were able to prove the reason behind it, we're going to make it more serious in the eyes of the law with hopefully more uh, potential consequences, either a fine or imprisonment in some way. So I just wanted to clarify that. But your, your question about kind of really, are hate crimes needed? Why, did they, why were they created? Why, why did we create this legislation? Really goes back to, first of all, something that we're still talking about today, and that is equality within our criminal justice system. But it goes back further. It's about victimization and who's being victimized. You know, Glenn, I don't know if you've ever had the traumatic event occur that you've been the victim of a violent crime. Um, clearly, you got that haircut. Um, so, you know, that was a crime in and of itself. But, but I'm bummed. <laughs> Two drink minimum. <laughs> Stick around. Enjoy the veal. Um, but when, when one is the victim of a crime, particularly a violent crime, that's a personal experience. Give me your money. I've scared you, I've taken your property, I've emasculated you, I've, I've potentially changed you forever for post-traumatic stress. You've taken my security, my exactly, security. Exactly, right? When it's a bias-related crime, okay, I'm just not victimizing you. There are an entire class of people who you are connected to because of your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your religion, on and on and on. Okay, that that crime impacts them. If you think of it that the crime is a stone, when you throw that stone into the, the placid, the beautiful pond or the, the lake, there's that initial splash. That's the crime. That's the personal part of it. What a bias crime is, is those ripples. It's those ripples that continue out farther and farther that we need to acknowledge occur. And that's why bias crimes legislation initially was discussed because it had a, a, a bigger impact on just one person being victimized than that initial person. It also is an equalizer. And what I mean by that is anybody that tells you that our criminal justice system is not biased when it comes to treating human beings equally has not experienced the same criminal justice system that you and I have. And you and I have been on the inside fighting for equality, right? And we still need to acknowledge it exists. What I mean by that is, and I know this, this is painful to say, but the lives of some people are not as valuable as other people's lives, such that when a particular race or gender of an individual is the victim of a crime, and a person of a different race, same gender as a victim of a crime at the same time, same facts, same circumstances, the sentences are going to be different, yeah. right? So what this does is it says to the judiciary, who are human beings, who are impacted by society and all of the implicit bias that exists in our world, it says, listen, we've added some enhancement here that we want you to look at because we know that when you look at this victim, you're, you're going low. You're not valuing that life. So now if we say they haven't victimized just that victim, but a group of people, maybe we'll get that sentence into an area. Nearly 30 years in District of Columbia, I never saw a judge sentence somebody to the max of one and a half times the maximum sentence in a hate crime. Mm. What I saw a lot of 
is a judge that was a low sentencer who might all usually give a probation or a low sentencing within the box. You can explain to them what that means. <laughs> but turn around and say, you know what? This is deserving of a few days in jail. This is deserving of not just a year's probation, but five years probation. And if that brings that crime up to say to our society, to our nation, to our city, and to those that need to live and work, that we value your lives, that's why bias crimes exist. You know, and sentencing is not just about the person being sentenced. No. Right? A trial on the merits, guilt or innocence, or guilt or not, not guilty, is about the person, the crime, the evidence, and verdicts, guilty or not guilty, do not send messages. Sentences send messages yep. beyond just this crime, this perpetrator, this victim. You know, you have general deterrence, and that is... You know, what do others in the community take away from what they just learned about this one person being sentenced for this crime, if it's a hate crime, if it's a bias crime? And so, yeah, there are um, matters beyond the individual case that I think are important, societally important. And that's one of the reasons I think, you know, hate crimes, bias crimes are an important part of our criminal practice, albeit somewhat underutilized. You know, you mentioned general deterrence. Um, this is going way back to probably your L1 years of law school. For me, criminal justice 100 back years ago in my, my bachelor's degree. But I get asked all the time, do you really think that hate crimes legislation prevents hate crimes? I'll be honest, I don't think it does. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that the research shows that people that commit the majority of hate crimes that occur are thinking about them beforehand. These are not chronic serial offenders going out and committing heinous acts over and over again. There are normally people whose inhibitions have been lowered due to some substance, alcohol primarily, but others, or have become so emotionally changed in some way, whether it's happiness, sadness, and their inhibitions become lower, and they engage in an act that they probably never would have before, or they show a bias that is deeply seated in them that they normally would never show. And when it comes to bias being unleashed, what a time we are in. And nobody's thinking about it. Nobody's thinking about it. When they commit a crime, when that guy points the gun at your head, he is not thinking, oh, you know what? I might get an extra one and a half years because this is bias related. That's not crossing their mind. The reason why is more the specific deterrent of sending a message to that person. Well, me in this case, okay? That was unacceptable and your motivation means it's more serious, but also the message to the community is so important. As you said, where we are today, we have so many Americans right now who don't feel that this government is paying attention to them, who don't feel that they're being heard, and who don't feel that the system of government that we have, and particularly the criminal justice system, weighs them as heavily as it does other people. So let's transition to your views as a recently retired police officer on the Black Lives Matter movement and what kind of reforms, you were on the inside for decades of policing, what kind of reforms do you think are necessary and do you think have a chance of taking hold and changing the culture that has brought us to where we are today? So let me start with some very clear statements um, about my position and that is number one, that I believe Black Lives Matter, personally. That I believe the concept behind 
those people that I know that are part of Black Lives Matter, my friends, okay, it is the concept that not Black Lives Matter and yours doesn't, but our lives have not mattered as much as everyone else's. And hey, don't forget us. Our lives matter too. That's number one. Number two, I am gutted by the co-option and the hijacking of that belief and that mission. What do you mean by that? By the extremists. There are extremes on both sides, the right and the left, who have taken that and turned it into anti-police movements and turned it into anti-government movements, anarchy. Um, and that is not what I believe Black Lives Matter is about. It is about raising up the lives of blacks such that their lives are recognized and valued as others in our society. And I believe in that. I also, as a police officer, believe it or not, as a white cop, can relate to my mission and my, my image being tarnished by the extreme. There's an image, and I mentioned to you that I like your shirt. It appears to have a thin blue line on it. That thin blue line is something that I believe very strongly in because to me, it is the line that I stand on between evil and good. It is the thin blue line between trust and not trust. Transparency and not having transparency. That's what I grew up with the thin blue line meaning. And there are individuals on the far right who march with Confederate flags, Nazi flags, who, who utter unspeakably biased things while carrying flags that have my thin blue line on it. And so now my, my message, the, the flag that I've flown proudly, is now viewed by millions of people very differently. And that hurts. I can relate to people in the Black Lives Movement who feel that the people on the far left who are being violent, who are rioters, who are destroying property, and saying, wait, this isn't what we're about. We're about lifting black lives up and making sure that they're treated equally. I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. So you were telling me something interesting earlier today about your view regarding whether police organizations, FOP, Fraternal Order of Police Organizations, for example, should be involved in um, supporting or um, coming out in favor of a particular political candidate, endorsing them. What, and can you share that with the audience? Sure. I support free speech. Uh, I, I, I think it is, first of all, it, it's in our Constitution, and it's something that I enjoy, free speech. I wouldn't be here today with you if it didn't exist. However, as a police officer um, and as police organizations, I don't know that we should be taking sides politically because no matter who is elected, we have to work with that person. We have to work with that party. We have to work with their supporters. And when we support a particular political candidate because we believe they support us more, I think we send a message to all of those who are not supportive of that candidate or who may actually oppose that candidate, look out because when that person gets elected, we're not on your side. And I don't want police officers to be viewed that way. And so my, my, my default is not to support political candidates as a law enforcement officer or law enforcement organization. 
Now, I understand there, there are many who are watching this probably that are part of police unions, and police unions are not police officers. They are entities for a certain reason to, to give them the ability and the power to speak out and to negotiate, to do legislative work, and to do political work. I'm not saying it's unlawful. I'm not saying that it is not, it's not within their right to do. I'm questioning whether it's appropriate, whether it's a moral and ethical thing to do as police officers. And that's the position I have personally. And that makes so much sense. I don't know that I've heard that articulated much, and certainly not by police officers or former police officers, but free speech is important. But you know what is probably even more important is being able to fairly and honorably and with kindness police all of the people and not be perceived, because perception is reality, right? Not be perceived as, here comes the police, they support candidate X, candidate X is ele was elected, that's not my candidate, I'm not going to get a fair shake as a citizen from the police force. So yes, free speech is important, but there are some things that are even more important, like the people who put a badge on their chest and a gun on their hip and are going to go out into the community and need to be not only actually fair, but they need to be perceived as fair and apolitical, quite frankly. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, you know, it, it, at this point, uh, it's public knowledge, the National Fraternal Order of Police, also the New York City's Police Benevolent Association, and also their Sergeant's Police Association have all come out and, and endorsed a, a particular presidential candidate. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they don't have the right to do that. What I'm saying is I don't necessarily know that if it makes their members safer to do that, first of all, but also I don't know if it serves the public that they serve and protect well to pick sides. Yeah. Well, whether it makes their membership safer, you were sharing with me some of the recent statistics about officers who have been injured in the line of duty. What were you telling me about that? Yeah, so unfortunately if you look, and, and I am the president of our local Concerns of Police Survivors, which... Um, rebuilds the shattered lives of families and other survivors of officers killed in the line of duty. So I look at these statistics frequently and, and unfortunately felonious assaults on police officers are up in the last three plus years. Line of duty deaths have increased in the last three to four years. I don't place blame on an individual or a party, but what I say is that's a trend that is concerning to me. And if you want to say we're safer, we need to look at those numbers and say, are we actually safer? More police officers dying? That's not even including COVID right now because unfortunately our numbers due to COVID are going to skyrocket for our memorial service in 2021. Um, I'm not sure that it is factual to say we are safer. Well, it sounds like it's factual to say law enforcement is less safe, has been less safe over the last three years if you look at the actual data. Of course, you can pick and choose your data. Sure. You can manipulate data to say whatever you want, but that's how I'm personally viewing it right now. So, Brett, I think I want to finish with police reform and where you think, what you think is realistic, what you think needs to be done, should be done, what can be done. And you were telling me about a program I hadn't heard about before called the ABLE program, and it's fascinating, and I would love for you to talk with the viewers about that. Sure. So, um, I have been a reformer before I knew what reform was um, because I'm, I'm an outside-the-box guy. Um, somehow, my parents taught me that if there were two roads, pick the third one. 
Um, I, that's just been the way. I've never chosen the easy way to do anything. And I lucked into the fact that the people that I've worked with and served valued that, um, luckily. <laughs> and because of that, I look at systems and I look at, at problems and don't think what's wrong with them, but how can we make them better? And I see policing the same way right now. That, that we have some very significant things going on of implicit bias, of use of force that is being used in situations that many citizens, one, don't understand why, and two, don't believe is just. And then finally, that we have many police officers out there who have not gotten to the point in their mindset, in their ideology, that they understand that they are citizens first, that they are peers, that they are equals, and that that badge doesn't place us above anyone else with regard to the law, but certainly morally and ethically. And I'd like to see a reset. I'd like to see us do a better job of educating officers and training officers that Sir Robert Peel, way back when policing started, said that we get our authority from the people the people don't just give it to us. We have to earn that authority. And so low-hanging fruit, things like equity within policing as far as gender equity. We have 50-50 population in the United States, male, female. Our police departments don't reflect that. Just changing that, just seeking to change the job so that women see policing as a viable career opportunity for them could astronomically change the face of law enforcement and how law enforcement reacts in crisis. Just that alone. Things like active bystander um, training, which is what this ABLE program at Georgetown Law teaches, to teach officers that when something is going wrong in front of you, when illegal activity is going wrong in front of you, when misconduct is going wrong in front of you, and it's being committed by a peer, by a police officer, whether they outrank you or not, that you have a moral obligation, first of all, to the public you serve, secondly, to yourself, but thirdly, to the individual who's engaging in that conduct to save everyone. Because if you stop a Derek Chauvin and say, take your knee off his neck, man, pull him off. George Floyd would be with us. George Floyd would be Chauvin with us. And the Derek rest Chauvin wouldn't be charged and looking at incarceration for a very long time. Yeah. The police department in Minneapolis would not be under siege. Yeah. Uh, on and on and on. And those officers wouldn't be charged. And so this program of ABLE, and it started in New Orleans called EPIC, um, is asking officers to sign on to a contract where they agree, no matter what rank they are, that I will intervene and, on the other side, I will accept intervention. And it's a whole program, it's based upon science and research and passionate people like myself who believe we can save lives, we can save careers, we can save money. All if we just teach officers that it's okay to say, ho, 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 stop. That's not right. So support your fellow officer when things are difficult, when things are dangerous, when he's doing the right thing. But... Also, take responsibility for your fellow officers when you see them doing the wrong thing, when you know they're doing the wrong thing. 
we can watch that tape, eight minutes and 46 seconds, or however long it took for Chauvin to snuff out the life of George Floyd, and we all ask ourselves, why in the world aren't the other officers taking responsibility? We all see that this was wrong. So, well, without, is, without giving away too many of the training secrets and research behind it, there are a lot of explanations for that in the research that exists. Because this isn't new. This goes back decades of research on why people don't intervene. Lot, yeah, lots of explanations, none of which are good. None of none. which are compelling oh, no, no. and none of which are acceptable. And I know you're not saying they are. But you can train people, you can prepare people for those barriers and how to navigate them and cope with those barriers to hopefully get a better outcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, uh, we've been talking your ear off, and um, but I could spend the next six hours talking with Brett, and I think what you all see, I don't have to say it, is this is what policing is all about. This is the kind of thought and concern and kindness, you know, and genuine empathy for the people he was policing um, that we need in our police departments. And the good news is, Brett is out there. You're, you're on several training missions now, right? Tell, just tell people a little bit about some of the training that you're involved in. So just generally speaking, uh, the areas of passion for me are still serving in underserved and marginalized communities, the LGBT community and other communities of color and religious minorities and faith-based communities. I'm also working in the reform area of, of how do we train police officers better and how do we change and shift paradigms of who we're hiring and how we're training them. Um, but also working in the area of bias crimes response and enforcement um, and how we can better uh, train primary responders, first responders, and then investigators to recognize the, 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 the clues that exist, collect that evidence to hopefully get better outcomes because bias crimes are very difficult to prove. Um, so those are just some of the examples. Uh, I have a lot of irons in the fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, due to COVID, unfortunately, many of them have not lit quite yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, thank you for all you did for decades, policing in Washington, D.C. Thank you for devoting yourself to marginalized populations and communities um, that, frankly, need our help, need law enforcement's help. Um, and thank you for, uh, for talking with me today, brother. I am proud to be your guinea pig and your first, first guest. guest. And uh, I hope it's onward and upward from here. All right. Thank you, my friend. Thank you.